And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered rightly. Do this and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Amen. Amen. Father God, we come to your word. It is our desire to grow not in our, only in our understanding of it, but in conformity to it. And I pray that you would bless uh, my lips and anoint our hearts and quicken that word to our hearts and help us, Father, to be the stronger for it. Do receive our worship as we continue uh, to worship by uh, responding to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I want to say, first of all, that I've been very, very encouraged with the mercy ministries I've seen in this congregation uh, over the past uh, four years or so. If you've not been involved, you might not realize the uh, a massive amount of work that has been going on, and a lot of it because it's behind the scenes, some of it's confidential, and people who are involved in that tend to you know, do their job and not toot their horn. They just go on to the next job once they are are done. So I'm not preaching this this morning because I'm saying, hey, you as a church need to get involved in mercy ministries. I'm thrilled with the involvement that we have in mercy ministries in this congregation. And uh, what I am doing is I'm ending this series on the foundations of the church. It's been a long series, but I'm ending it by wanting people to realize this is something that I want to be central to the church forever. And I think it needs to be central to every church, really. And so far, I think we have done so. Some of you have been involved in giving generous financial gifts to people who are needy or giving donations of food, and not just to the food pantry, but uh, directly to the needy. And um, uh, Others have been involved in hardcore counseling. There's been jail visits. There's been nursing home visits, care for disabled family members, gift of two vehicles to uh, needy people. Uh, financial counseling, physical labor to help people out. I mean, when you're looking at Mercy Ministries, it covers a wide gamut of things. And in this chapter here, the uh, Good Samaritan provided friendship to someone who had no friends, advocacy for someone who had no one to stand up for him, emergency medical treatment, transportation, hefty financial subsidy, shelter, even follow-up. And Scripture would describe uh, the visits that some of you make to the nursing homes as mercy ministries. It would describe 
uh, you know, the work in that old Dominion house as being uh, Mercy Ministries. And uh, I want to encourage you by saying Jesus promises this, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And so if you want more blessings and you want more mercies from the Lord, you need to place yourself in the strongest flow of God's blessings and mercies, and that's in ministry to other peoples. That's where you're going to enter into uh, God's blessing. Now, I want to also say that this uh, sermon today is not intended to correct all of the abuses and the socialistic misapplications of this passage uh, that uh, have been made in the church. There are some good books out there that do that, and uh, one that I would recommend is David Chilton's book, uh, productive Christians in an Age of Guilt Manipulators. He not only deals with the negative of why Ronald Sider's uh, uh, socialism does not work, but he gives a positive alternative as well. And if you just can't take uh, you know, somebody that comes out and draws blood, uh, then you might want to read George Grant's books. He's much uh, milder and meeker, but uh, he's got some tremendous stuff on Mercy Ministries as well. So you can do some research for yourselves in those areas. But today what I want to do is I want to take a worst case scenario, a person who can't glean, a person who can't help himself in any way. He is helpless. He is defenseless. And when we're confronted with a situation like that, what does it arouse within us? We're looking at attitudes. What are our attitudes toward mercy ministries on all sides of the equation? And this morning I want to use the same three tests that we used uh, for one of the lessons in our Mercy Ministries class uh, to evaluate ourselves. Uh, I'm going to be adding some material and also deleting some that was more apropos for them. But there's the possessiveness test, the involvedness, involvement test, and the sacrifice test. And I want us to be evaluating our own hearts in terms of whether we are a neighbor on these three tests. Now, the first test is the possessiveness scale. And I'm going to start at the lowest level, verse 30. Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Uh, someone once said that these thieves' attitudes were what's mine's mine and what's thine's mine if I can get it. And we might think, you know, that's so obviously sinful, so obviously wrong that we don't even need to apply it. The church would never be involved in anything like that. But I want to meditate on that a little bit because I think that envy is rife in the church of Jesus Christ. In fact, uh, you may want to put the word beside your outline there, socialism. Uh, OTOC, which stands for Omaha Together One Community, as far as I'm concerned, is an organization of socialism and envy. And the remedy for poverty in Omaha is actually going to make poverty worse. It is not going to help it at all. And I think we are so used to thinking of the welfare state, of the uh, socialistic concept as being the good Samaritan applied to the state that uh, many times we don't discern when we read a passage like this as to what applies to the individual and what applies uh, to the state. It is not. The welfare society is far closer to the bandits in this passage than it is to the good Samaritan. And the reason I say that is because the welfare state is using the power of the sword to extract taxes, to extract money from these people so that it can redistribute the money over to those people over there. And so it really is far closer to the bandits than it is uh, to the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan was not a socialist. Okay, This Good Samaritan used his own money, his own sweat, his own donkey, you know, his own labor, his own time 
in order to help out this person. He was not a socialist. In fact, he did not even expect that innkeeper, that that innkeeper was responsible, you know, to give free board and room. No, he took this on as his own personal project, okay? Uh, Bastiat, in his masterful treatise, The Law, I think is an indictment of what the churches of Omaha are doing and asking the state to take money from people to give to the victims that they see in society, and some of them aren't even victims. But Bastiat is a, a book that uh, the, the youth uh, parent table talk went through. If you don't have that book, you need to get it. I think it's just a masterful treatment. It's called The Law. And what he does in, in that book uh, is he describes what was going on in France in his day. It was written in 1853. And he was contrasting that with what was going on in America. And he ends it all by saying this is the only Christian way to live. But the fascinating thing is what he was describing as going wrong in France is exactly what is happening today in, in America. He starts just by def defining plunder on a personal level. And this is where a thief, you know, walks up to you and, and takes your money. He says, quote, when a portion of wealth is transferred from the person who owns it, without his consent and without compensation, whether by force or fraud, to anyone who does not own it, then I say that property is violated, that an act of plunder is committed. Now, almost everybody agrees with his definition up to this point. They say, okay, that's theft. You know, anybody comes up to me and forces me to give my money so that they can, you know, apply it to their favorite charity, that would be theft. But he goes on and he says this, I say that this act is exactly what the law is supposed to suppress, always and everywhere. When the law itself commits this act that it is supposed to suppress, I say that plunder is still committed, and I add that from the point of view of society and welfare, this aggression against rights is even worse, unquote. And I think we really do need to understand this concept that Bastiat is getting across. He demonstrates that when the government takes taxes so that I can educate my children, it is theft. It is theft by biblical definition. Because God has never authorized the government to be involved in the redistribution of... of and in fact, if you just think of it this way. If I go up to my neighbor and I say to my neighbor, you know, I need money for the education of my children and I would really appreciate a donation. He tells me to get lost and I pull out my gun and I say just as sweetly, you know, it'd be really nice if you gave a donation. He says, sure, sure, here's the money. Anybody would recognize that that is theft, right? Now, if it is wrong for me to do that, why does it suddenly become right just because the government is taking money from that individual and is educating my children? The Bible has never, never authorized the government to do that. And by, by the way, our Constitution has never, never authorized uh, the government to do that uh, either. And government use of taxes for welfare or school loans or local disaster relief is theft. See, what modern Christians mistake for charity by the government is actually robbery and thievery. It's banditry. It's tyranny. And we're in a sad state of affairs when the church of Jesus Christ cannot distinguish between the bandits and the Good Samaritan in this parable. We are in a sad state of affairs. The Good Samaritan was doing something that was diametrically opposite to what the federal government and what state and local governments are doing nowadays. I'm constantly getting probably gotten three or four very expensive, glossy uh, booklets, brochures that are just wooing me to take government money. 
Uh, this is the faith-based initiatives, at least the first stage of those things. And they say, hey, there's all kinds of money that's available for you to be engaging in your mercy ministries. Hundreds of thousands of dollars that you as a church can take. We could go buy that building, you know, that we're looking at down there. We could be involved in all kinds of things that we presently cannot be involved in. But President Bush's faith-based initiative is founded on plunder, not true mercy ministries. And any church that takes that money has guilt upon their hands, as far as I'm concerned. And unfortunately, there are even PCA churches that have been taking the money from the government. Socialism feeds the envious attitude of other bandits who have the attitude, what's mine's mine and what's thine's mine, if I can get it, and I'm going to keep trying to get your money for my pet projects. And we need to do everything in our power to resist false charity. You know, the newspeak that calls tyranny and banditry charity. We need to oppose it with everything that is in our might because true charity cannot flourish when you're in a situation when the government is giving this counterfeit. So that's the first thing that I would uh, say, that uh, this issue of banditry definitely applies to the Church of Jesus Christ today. It is rife. Uh, there are bandits all over, but they have cloaked what they are doing with the term charity and love. Okay? Now, the next level away from possessiveness was what's mine's mine and what's thine's thine if you can keep it. And if you want a phrase to uh, uh, summarize that, you could put beside that evolutionary capitalism of Spencer. Not capitalism, because I think this parable is upholding the truth of ca true capitalism, but evolutionary capitalism. Uh, the innkeeper was not uh, mandated by the government to provide uh, free board and room. Uh, and uh, uh, there was no uh, uh, pressure upon the Levite or the priest by the government, you know, to be helping out. And you don't see the government's involvement at all in this passage. Uh, free capitalism is definitely held up. But let me, let me explain the difference that I see in my mind on this. Biblical capitalism, which I define as being stewardship capitalism, desires to have freedom from government so that we can use our liberties in generous advancement of God's kingdom. Okay? Uh, God-glorifying ways. Biblical capitalism sees all of our wealth as a stewardship trust from God that we are morally obligated to use the way God calls us to use it, not the way everybody else is trying to manipulate us in guilty ways. Evolutionary capitalism, on the other hand, sees man as not only free from government, but free from all moral restraints. Okay, so there is a big difference. And um, let me give you some illustrations from the Old Testament. The Old Testament was capitalistic through and through, but it mandated that we use our freedoms in ways that would glorify God, that would help others. Uh, the government, for example, did not enforce loving your neighbor as yourself. It did not enforce loving your enemies, but it was still a mandate, for example... Exodus 24, verse 3 says, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. Now, that's got to choke people, you know. It, it, it's going to be hard enough to do it to somebody who's not your enemy. Man, what, a, what an investment of time and effort and inconvenience returning this donkey, chasing him down in the first place and returning him to, the, to this neighbor. But to do it for an enemy? And he says, yes, you shall surely do it. In the next verse, uh, he says, If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. And when Christ is giving this parable, he is not bringing up something revolutionarily new. Now, he's just 
rebuking the Israelites for failing to live out exactly what the Old Testament said they should have been doing all along anyway. Okay, so some people have posited this in a socialistic way in contrast to the capitalism of the Old Testament. They say, well, selfishness back then, now we're to be generous. No, this has always been part and parcel of biblical, uh, biblical Christianity. Leviticus 19, verse 34 says, The alien living with you must be treated as one of your native-born. Love him as yourself, for you are aliens in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. I spent five hours talking with... Um, uh, a Jewish guy this this past week, we were dealing with all of these kinds of scriptures. He was insisting, nowhere does it say in the Old Testament, you have to love your enemies. And uh, so I was bringing out some of these different scriptures uh, that say Christ was not giving anything new. He was just reinforcing what the Old Testament says. Now, I'm sure that the priest and the Levite both had their reasons for not stopping, and they're probably the same reasons that we fail to stop when we see um, a lady, you know, with her car broken down on the side of the of the highway. Or when we witness um, an accident and we don't stop, you know, we're right there. We've seen everything that's happened. We could have been a witness. We think, oh, somebody else will stop. Uh, I'm in a, a kind of a hurry and nobody else does stop. Uh, we won't steal, but we aren't about to lose our time or our energy by protecting somebody else's property. And so we see somebody prowling around the neighbor's house or maybe a kid heaving a big brick through their, uh, their window. It wouldn't take a whole lot of energy and effort and time to be able to inform that person or try to help that person out in terms of the protection of his property. And how many people in America do that? We tend to just, you know, what's mine's mine, what's thine's thine, if you can keep it. It's just like hands off, you know. Uh, it's uh, a dog-eat-dog -dog world, and I'm not going to mess myself with other people's problems. We wouldn't think of stealing, but we, would we offer to let our neighbor borrow our wheelbarrow? Those are the kinds of questions, I think, that measure the degree to which possessiveness has become uh, too, too strong over our possessions. Possessiveness of time, energy, convenience, money, property, that's the death of missions, and it is for sure the death of mercy ministries. Unless we deal with the issue of possessiveness, we'll never be motivated to be involved in mercy ministries. Let me read you again, Exodus 23, 4 through 5. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden, and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. So according to that attitude, we cannot, I mean that passage, we cannot take the attitude, well, that's his responsibility, I don't need to worry about it. Uh, it's his property if he can keep it. Third response to this test was, what's thine's thine, and what's mine's thine if you need it, and the Bible approves. Now, Christ defines the true neighbor as the Samaritan who is willing to part with his time, his efforts, his energy, his safety, his money. And there are other passages that uh, give limits to, uh, to this principle. Uh, you don't give to everyone who has a need. Sometimes the need is there deliberately. Uh, the Lord's trying to bring that person to repentance, and you're undoing exactly what the Lord is trying to do when you help that person out. So uh, it's not saying we need to be a bleeding heart for absolutely every need that is out there. There are limits that Scripture gave, and part of my series of, of um, prosperity and poverty, or wealth and poverty, whatever the series name was, was dealing with some of those issues. So I'm not going to deal with them right now. But I do want to address another misapplication of this scripture before we move on. And I want you to turn with me to Galatians 6 for this. And I think it will help to give us a little bit of a balance. 
I want you to notice in this parable of the Good Samaritan that this is to be our attitude with our own help to another. We should not expect others to have this attitude to us. And I tell you, it's a tremendous turnoff to me when people expect charity, when they demand charity. In fact, that's about the time that I say, well, when you get your attitude straight, now we might rethink this, but there's nothing coming out of my pocket for you right now. Uh, no demandingness uh, that, is, that is allowed in the Scripture. Now, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2 says, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Okay, so that's the point that we're talking about in uh, point... Um, uh, C, uh, 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 in your outline, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Very biblical, very important principle, but Paul knows immediately what's going to happen when some people read that verse. Some lazy people are going to read that verse and they're going to say, yeah, I've got a burden and you need to be bearing my burden. They're going to be saying, well, see, it says right there, Paul says you need to bear one another's burdens and I've got a burden, so you need to bear my burden. That is not what Paul says. Paul says to everyone, including the person who has a need, the person whom you are perhaps thinking of helping, he says to everyone, bear one another's burdens. You need to be involved in somebody else's burdens. And I tell you, there is nothing that is more healthy to a person that you are trying to get off of welfare, you're trying to help, and financially in other ways, then to begin immediately instructing him, number one, you need to tithe. Number two, you need to be helping other people. Number three, here's some ministries you need to be involved in because it's training them out of the very issues that have gotten them into trouble in the first place. And so what Paul does, he knows people are going to misinterpret that phrase right off the bat, and he gives three more verses uh, by which he clarifies what he means and what he does not mean, beginning at verse three. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing... He deceives himself. That's clarifying that absolutely none of us deserve any of this help. Okay, none of us can be demanding. You think too highly of yourself, forget it. You're not, you're not worthy of this, of this mercy going on. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. So if you're not involved in work, if you're not involved in ministry of some sort, the likelihood is you probably should not be helped. You know, Paul says, if a man work not, neither let him eat. And there's many other principles along these lines. So he's kind of clarifying. Then he goes on to say in verse 5, for each one shall bear his own load. Each one shall bear his own load. Notice the personal responsibility that every person has, each one. No freeloading. If a man will not work, neither shall he eat. But I want you to notice the difference between verse 5 and verse 2. Verse 5 says, each one shall bear his own load. Verse 2 says, bear one another's burdens. That is not in contradiction. Many people say that's just a flat-out contradiction. It is not. Here's what's going on. He is saying, I, I need to have the attitude, I'm going to bear burdens to the best of my abilities, and I'm also going to try to help other people with their burdens. And if everyone had that attitude, there would be no abuse of the system. There would be mutual ministry, but where you're able to do it yourself, you wouldn't be depending upon other people to do it. Can you see that? It's really a perfect balance. Okay, with that caveat from Galatians chapter 6 in mind, let's go back to the parable of the Good Samaritan. <clears throat> the parable of the Good Samaritan indicates 
Okay, understanding that caveat indicates we need to be willing at a moment's notice at any time to give up the things that are in our stewardship trust when God calls upon them. We need to be willing to, to sacrifice, to give to those who are in need. All that we have and all that we own should be used in the master's service. Okay? And we need to measure where on the scale we find ourselves in terms of possessiveness. Is our house that we have prayed over and we've devoted to the Lord truly the Lord's or when the Lord has some ministry that he wants us to have in that house and we're burdened with it, we think, oh, you know what? It might, uh, it might uh, kind of bring a little too much wear and tear or it might be inconvenient. Is it the Lord's only when it's convenient or is it truly the Lord's? What about our bodies? What about our cars and our, our finances and other things like that? When God calls upon us to make a sacrifice of the things that he has lent to us anyway, they're, they're his. It's just a stewardship trust. Are we possessive? and reluctant to give them up, or are we saying, sure, Lord, if you can use it and it's in the better interests of your kingdom, I'm quite happy to part with the things that you have given to me. Sometimes it takes something major to make people get over this hurdle. Uh, for Dr. Dick Kaufman, who was one of my professors at Westminster, wonderful man, uh, but uh, he was being involved in Mercy Ministries, and he had invited, this is one of his first ventures into Mercy Ministries, he had invited this drunk, into his living room and was counseling with the guy and he barfed all over his carpet. And he was thinking, great, brand new carpet here. And he immediately knew the Lord was giving an integrity check. I've got a choice. Do I protect my home and never have this kind of mercy ministries ever again? Or do I say, okay, there's going to be wear and tear and I've got to just account for that. We're going to have to, you know, have fix up and things like that. He chose... Yes, Lord, this is your property. And if you want it barfed on, it'll get barfed on. And if you want to protect it, you can protect it. But Lord, I want it to be used for the extension of your kingdom. And it transformed him. It transformed him. And from that point on, he gave up everything that he had. And he said, Lord, I want my substance to be used in a way that counts for eternity. And, and, and he really modeled that. He was a wonderful. And his wife and his kids modeled that as well. Wonderful, uh, wonderful examples. So, <clears throat> true biblical capitalism is stewardship capitalism. And you can write stewardship capitalism beside point C, unless I had already done that. And so it asks, how can I best use everything that I have for the glory of God? Now, sometimes it may mean I'm not going to give this to that person, even though that person wants what I have because it's not in his best interest and it's not what God's word authorizes. What this person needs is he needs to have a period of time where he's going with nothing until he is motivated to work. Paul didn't just automatically feed people because they were hungry. He wanted to make sure that when he fed them, it was going to be for the glory of of Christ. Now, another convicting measure of our neighborliness is how involved we are with our neighbors, especially with their needs and their hurts and their stresses. Neither of these churchmen, and both the Levite priest were churchmen, neither of them was ignorant of the plight of the, of the Samaritan. If you look at verse 31, it says, Now by chance a certain priest came down uh, that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side, likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. Okay, so 
Here is this uh, first guy. He sees the need, and for whatever reason, he chooses to be at a safe distance. Perhaps he planned to notify the guards when he got to his destination. We're not told why, but in some way, he justified his non-involvement. Now, just because we are aware does not mean we're necessarily going to be at the front lines of the battlefield. Um, uh, it may mean that uh, we're going to offer up a quick prayer, and it's amazing how much prayer you can get accomplished when you read the newspaper with a God-centered perspective. Every news item, you're just lifting up as you're reading along, oh, Lord, you know, and you're, you're praying the news, and you're praying the newsletter. It doesn't even have to take um, a lot of time. There are various types of involvements, but there is not a Christian in our church who does not know at least some of the needs that are going on in, the, in their community and in Omaha as a whole, needs of missions, the plight of millions of Christians in persecution in other countries. And the question that we need to ask is, am I content with merely being aware or does this awareness drive me to involvement of some sort? Whatever. The involvement may be prayer. Now, sometimes our uninvolvement is biblical, sometimes it is not. Obviously, one person cannot do everything. We're talking about our involvement with those whom God has placed providentially into our lives. Now, the first level is simply awareness of the problem, but choosing to keep it a safe distance. And we're in this category. I think if we are driving down the freeway and we see, you know, a lady that's standing beside her car, you know, and it's, uh, she's stranded there, and we just, we just drive on. We're aware of it, but we're not doing anything about it. The second level shows concern and a willingness to investigate. Now, I'm sure that this Levite was really bothered, and that was good. And many times we're bothered when we see that bad things are happening. But verse 32 says, Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. He not only saw, but he came close enough to be able to investigate. And sometimes we Christians will salve our consciences by giving enough investigation and research that we can feel we're in some way involved. Maybe we subscribe, you know, to Voice of the Martyrs magazine, or maybe we've taken a tour of the, of the jail or the Open Door Mission, or uh, we've uh, in some way tried to do some research. But after being informed, we still pass by on the other side. We have not done what God has called us to do because in James it says, if you see your brother... Uh, or a sister, and they are naked and destitute, and you say, you know, be warm, be filled, Lord bless you, you know, I'll pray for you. He says, you have accomplished nothing. In fact, your faith is an empty faith. That's James 2, 15 through 19. James 1, 19 says, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Well, what does that say about a church that is not involved in mercy ministries, never visits the orphan and the widow in their trouble? It's not pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father. That's exactly what James is implying. And so that's the issue of the next point. Like the Samaritan, we need to find ways in which we can be involved in measurable, concrete ways. Measurable, concrete ways. Have you had physical contact? And what I want to do is I want to... Uh, I want to just read through, beginning at verse 33, and I want you to see the closeness of this Samaritan. Verse 33, but a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. Now, Christ does not expect us to be a bleeding heart, you know, person who's, who's just feel like we've got to do something for everybody in the whole wide world and feed the poor in India and all that kind of stuff. Here is a situation where God has providentially put him into your path. Okay, you cannot ignore him. He's right there in front of them. We have limited abilities, but 
we're dealing with those that God has brought to us. When he saw him, so he too needs to be aware of the problem, he had compassion on him. There is the motive that drove him into action. And it's, I think it's a very important motive. We'll maybe deal with it a little bit later on. The priest and the Levite, they were trained. If you ever study the Old Testament, what priests and Levites were trained in, they were trained in mercy ministries. They were trained even in medical practices. And so they had all of the qualifications to be able to help this Samaritan, but they did nothing. Here's, I mean, to help the other Jew. Here's a Samaritan. We're not told if he's trained or if he's not trained, but he has the one thing that's really needed, and it's compassion to move him to action and to do something about it. And sometimes that's all we need. We might feel inadequate. Hey, what you're doing something as an inadequate person is better than the person who's trained and is doing nothing. So anyway, he has compassion and went to him. There's breaking the social barrier and actually making contact. Um, see, and went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. So there's providing physical and medical assistance. And he set him on his animal. There's lending of property. He brought him to the inn. There's the transportation, giving a lift. Took care of him. There's custodial care. On the next day, this uh, in, in implies prolonged contact. He took time to, to be with him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii. So there's finances. Gave them to the innkeeper, said to him, take care of him, whatever more you spend. When I come again, I will repay. And so there's so many different levels of personal involvement in the life of this person I think we can learn from. And we studied those in Mercy Ministries class, and we're not going to get into them here. But we've seen in point number one, to be a true neighbor means you're going to be denying yourself. It's always a denial of self to be involved in Mercy Ministries, period. You cannot be possessive of your time, comfort, or schedule. You simply will not be involved in mercy ministries if you are. The second major point is it involves closeness. It involves involvement in their life. And then lastly, let's look at the kind of sacrifice that was made. It always requires sacrifice. And, you know, one of the things I should have mentioned earlier, verse 37, he says, go and do likewise. What he was involved in, he expects other believers to be involved in. Go and do likewise. And uh, when we get deacons uh, in the church, which I'm hoping, you know, we can get this year, beginning of next year. But when we get deacons in the church, do not think, oh, good, I don't have to do mercy ministries. We've got professionals now, you know, to do mercy ministries. No, their role is to stir the congregation up to mercy ministries, to lead in mercy ministries. And hopefully there's somebody following, right? And so don't expect that the deacons are going to be handling all the, the, the mercy ministries. They are the ones who are going to be equipping and helping us to be involved in that. Now, the first and the most obvious sacrifice that the Samaritan made was to take a risk. Uh, first of all, to risk his safety, you know, passing on the other side. There is a reason why this road was called the Bloody Way. Um, it, it was a dangerous place, very dangerous place. Perfect hideout for bandits, and so travelers that were going through there, usually they traveled in groups, but they were casing things out, you know, wanting to make sure they weren't taken by surprise. And just to give a little perspective, Jerusalem rests at 3,000 feet above sea level. Jericho rests at 1,000 feet below sea level, and that's 17 miles away. So that's a pretty steep grade. You're traveling over 17 miles, you're traveling 4,000 feet down. And so, as you're traveling down this road, it descends sharply through very mountainous territory filled with caves and crags, you know, that thieves could 
jump out of and go back and hide in again. Uh, one author likened it to walking through a dark alley in one of the worst cities in our nation, but he says there's one difference. It's many miles to the nearest streetlight. And yet, he still says, go and do likewise. That's an amazing thing. He's saying we need to be willing to take risks, risks even with our, our safety. In this case, he could have gotten robbed by the same people, or he could have been accused of being robber by the person he was helping. That's one of the things I sometimes worry about. You know, we help some of the people who come uh, to our, our doorstep. Is I, I wonder, one of these times I'm going to get sued by the very people that I am helping out. There are risks. Now, there are things that you can take to ameliorate those risks, to try to reduce the risk. And I'm always trying to reduce risk in some way or a fashion, but you can't do away with risk. You know, if, you're, if you've got a person that's coming up and they've got alcohol on your breath, uh, in terms of stewardship, it's a bad risk to just give him the money and trust his word that he's going to spend it like he says he's going to spend it. Um, and a person asks for, uh, uh, you know, finances for food. Usually what I do is I take him to the restaurant or we invite him to our place for dinner. And uh, usually they don't take us up on that. <laughs> you know, they're wanting to use it for something else. So those are ways in which you can uh, reduce the risk a little bit. Um, as much as I have taken precautions over the past years, I've been ripped off numerous times. And I know I'll continue to be ripped off. It's one of the reasons I take precautions, you know. I have... I'm no longer naive about what to expect in Mercy Ministries. But if we think we're going to get rid of all risk of danger, no, it's just not going to happen if you're going to be involved uh, in this. If you witness to your neighbor, he might get angry at you and punch you in the nose. I mean, there's always risks. There's risks in running a business. There's risks anywhere that you face. You cannot be too risk aversive in this. Now, a second sacrifice was time. This person spent the night with the man, went out of his way to help, and it's obvious that patching the man up, putting him on his donkey, and taking the time to take him to the inn was not planned. So it messed up his schedule, right? And a lot of people have put into their schedules what they call the Good Samaritan factor. I call it a fudge factor. And uh, at the end of the week, I've got a block of time that uh, is called catch-up time. And it's almost always used <laughs> because the Lord does bring things into our lives. But if you plan for it ahead of time, Lord, I want my schedule to be your schedule. And I'm going to plan the schedule of this week where there is some catch-up time. If there's nothing for that catch-up time, there's new projects that I can be involved in. But Lord, if you providentially put somebody into my path that I need to take care of, I've already gotten it put into my schedule with a fudge factor. We need to be willing to sacrifice time. Third sacrifice was emotions. There was an emotional expenditure. And doing what he did would have been stressful. Verse 33 says he had compassion on him. The word for compassion in the Greek is a word I've shared with you before, and you've got to memorize this word. It's a cool word. It's splunknidzo. Okay? Splunknidzo is dealing with the intestines. And, and you know what it feels like with the churning of emotions in your intestines. And that's exactly the meaning of that word. And he was, I mean, it, it sometimes feels uncomfortable. It's, you feel nervous. Your insides are, are going when you're involved in that. And that is why some people will not be involved in Mercy Ministries is they don't want to be nervous. Let me tell you something, brother and sister. You're missing out on the glories and the blessings of life 
if you're only doing things that you're never nervous over. You're not taking the kind of risks that God calls you to take, whether it's in business or any other area. And so his emotions were in gear. And over and over again in the Gospels, you see it said of Jesus being moved with his splunknizo, okay, being moved with compassion, he ministered, he taught, he did this or he did that. It was a tremendous motivating factor. He was willing to expend his emotions. Now, here, here's what happens in America frequently. And I think it's in part the problem of television. People spend hours every day in television and they will see things on television like a murder or, or you know, rape or some kind of a thing and it arouses emotions within them that ordinarily would move them to action to defend this individual, but they can't do that. They're just sitting in front of a TV. They can't you know, put a hammer through the TV or something. So they're sitting in front of the TV and what is happening is they are conditioning their emotions, their body, to when these emotions arrive to never respond as God intended them to respond so that when they get out into the real world, they respond just like they would in front of the TV. And so you have all of these reports in the newspaper of a rape that happened outside and people are looking out the windows. They didn't so much as lift their telephone to call the police. He says that ought not to be. In the Christian church, we need to be willing to expend our emotions, be moved by our emotions in terms of mercy ministries. Okay, fourth, there was physical exertion. A lot of mercy ministries require plain old-fashioned sweat. Now, some people seem to be allergic to sweat, but uh, there's no way of getting around sweat, you know, when it comes to mercy ministries. You know, when Matt started uh, that old Dominion house, we all got sweaty, right? I mean, that's part and parcel of mercy ministries. A willingness to sweat um, is uh, not uh, a disease, it's uh, a virtue. Now, of course, using money was also a sacrifice, and some people would rather give money than sweat, but I think there needs to be a balance of all of these things in our lives. Uh, each family should have, as a part of their budget, above and beyond their tithing, a portion of money that can be discretionary money that when a need comes up, they're able to give it. That's what God commanded of the Old Testament saints. They needed to have it as part of their regular budget, just counting on the fact God's going to have the poor that they're going to have to give to. And if you can't find poor, I can show you plenty of poor that, that you could give to. Uh, there, are, there are all kinds of things you could do in the nursing home and in other places that would be a tremendous blessing. And then finally, there was the sacrifice of breaking the social barriers. And I think for some people, this is probably the hardest area. I've outlined three social barriers in your outlines that were crossed by the Samaritan. First of all, he ministered to a person who was very, very unpleasant. Verse 30 says he was naked and wounded severely enough that he was half dead. And verse 34 implies he had multiple wounds. Now, anybody who's worked in the emergency room and the ER knows how unpleasant it is to clean up a person like this who is caked with blood and dirt and uh, wounds, his hair all matted with blood. It, it's not nice. It's not nice. Let me tell you something. A lot of mercy ministries are not nice. The people smell. I mean, even in the nursing home where there's attempt to make things clean, a lot of people don't like to visit in a nursing home because it makes them feel uncomfortable. And it's just unpleasant. You see people sitting in their poop and their urine, and it's like, I can't do this. Get over it. Get over it. And make sure that your kids get over it. I think it's very important that we model to our kids that we are going over these social barriers, and right from their youngest time, you take them in there, and you might think, yeah, it's so shocking, though. 
when you see the, 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 the ulcers and you see the kinds of things. Well, I think our kids many times are too sheltered. They're way too sheltered. Read the first five books of the Bible. Every kid from three years old and up had that read to them every year. There's some pretty shocking stuff in the first five books of the Bible. And I don't think we should shelter our kids. What I think we should do instead is we should take our kids, you know, to the nursing home uh, once a month, perhaps. Have them minister to people and then explain to them why these people really, really need for them. Smelly. You explain the whole process that they're going through or have them go to some other kind of a ministry, but get them beyond the social barrier. If we're just in the areas of our comfort, again, we're not going to have very many mercy ministry opportunities. And by the way, there are a number of people here that that, that, that do visit nursing homes uh, and there are organizations that do this regularly and love to have volunteers. Um, Tom, what's the name of the guy that does the saxophone and his ministry and 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 then there's and then Denny Hartford uh, yeah and Denny Hartford has one as well but uh, over time as the church gets bigger i wouldn't be surprised if we have a a very you know kind of a formal a regular ministry to nursing homes as well so we need to model what it means to be a good samaritan another social barrier that requires sacrifice is ministering to those who persecute you okay it was not by accident that christ picked the Samaritan for this illustration. Uh, the, the Samaritans didn't treat the Jews too good, and the Jews especially didn't treat the Samaritans too good. Alfred Edersheim quotes old Jewish rabbis as saying, may I never set eyes on a Samaritan. May I never be thrown into company with him. To partake of their bread is like eating swine's flesh. He commented, the Jews retaliated by treating the Samaritans with every mark of contempt, by accusing them of falsehood, folly, and irreligion, and what they felt most keenly, by disowning them as of the same race or religion, and this in the most offensive terms of assumed superiority. To minister to this person. Now that's tough. It's tough to take a pie over to the neighbor, you know, who has chewed you out and who's called your kids monsters. And I'm not talking about a pie with arsenic in it. I'm talking about a good pie, right? It's tough. And yet that is exactly what God calls us to do is to go over those social barriers and demonstrate to these enemies that God's grace can enable us to do what no unbeliever can do. I mean, that's a powerful testimony in their lives. In fact, um, Dick Kaufman uh, told the story of, uh, well, I may not remember the story, so I shouldn't probably go into it, but they had a neighbor that was just horrible, absolutely horrible. And they just kept doing nice things for her, nice things, they'd mow her lawn and everything they did, she'd turn into something evil and they would bake a pie and they would send it over. And finally, one day she just broke down in tears and was sobbing. She says, I've never had anybody treat me with such love. Well, you can see why she was, a, I won't say what she was. Um, <laughs> But it broke through. And that's what scripture says. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, gives us all kinds of cool ways in which we can fail to be overcome by evil, but instead to overcome evil with good. And I would encourage you to, to read that. But Jesus said, if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Shows what he thought of tax collectors. And if you greet your brothers only, what do you do more than others? Do not even tax collectors do so? 
Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. In other words, your standard is God. It's not what other people think. You can sometimes live up to the expectations of others, sometimes can't. But your, your standard is God. And God tells you in Deuteronomy 10, verse 19, Therefore, love the stranger. For you are strangers in the land of Egypt. Proverbs 25, verse 21 says, If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. And so, ministry, mercy ministries really is a call to even go over the social barrier of ministering to those who persecute you. And the last social barrier that this man overcame was ministering to a person who was racially different, culturally different, different in so many ways. Being a neighbor means that a person's skin color is not going to affect the quality of your service to him. It means that we're going to reach beyond the social constraints. We're going to try to draw that person in. So here's a defining passage that I want our church to be defined by. Okay, It's a passage which criticizes socialism, but it also criticizes unaccountable capitalism. It calls upon us to be stewards of our time, our energies, our resources, everything that we have to be willing to make sacrifices when it serves God's purposes, when God calls us to it. It calls us to be more than theoretical about mercy and to put into practice the love that God put into practice on our behalf. And it's my prayer that our church would grow and prosper as the Lord works in and through us as we begin to take seriously the Samaritan mandate. Amen. Amen. Father God, we thank you for this challenge, this uncomfortable challenge, and yet, Father, it's an exciting challenge as we see the, the possibilities of what uh, we could do by your grace. And I pray that our church would indeed be characterized uh, by uh, true mercy ministries. And I pray, Father, that perhaps we might even be able to be a model of what could be achieved through this uh, that would uh, uh, stand as something uh, that is bright in contrast to the socialistic models that are rife all around us. Uh, Father, uh, I pray that the church of Jesus Christ would abandon and repent of uh, doing things the world's way and constantly looking to the state to be Messiah and to be Savior instead of looking to your supernatural grace to work in and through us. Uh, Father, help us not to take the attitude, let George do it, but may we be uh, true uh, biblical capitalists taking responsibility for our own, uh, uh, our, our own resources and the stewardship that you have given to us. Father, we love you, and it is our desire to see you lifted up and to see your kingdom grow. And we pray that your kingdom would come, your will would be done more and more on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.